money. You can't really get through life without it. Some people use it to define success. Some people use it as the key to reach their goals. And some people use it to attain freedom. Whatever your motivation, you need to know how to earn it, how to use it and how to grow it. For years, women have been telling their beauty stories, their success stories, their health stories. Now we want to talk to women about their money stories. Welcome to Tilly Money. Sarah Wilson came to prominence in the Australian media as the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine and host of MasterChef Australia. Pivoting into the world of wellness, Sarah launched IQuitSugar.com, a successful wellness website publishing 11 cookbooks that sell to 52 countries. Turning to other topics, Sarah wrote her next bestseller, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, on her lifelong battle with anxiety, and has now turned to address the big topics of climate change, human disconnection, and the complexities of our current epoch in her new book, This One Wild and Precious Life. For me, financial success or you know, comfort is really not wanting so very much. It is, it's the luxury of not having to worry about money. But I can do that because I genuinely don't worry about possessions. Today's episode is brought to you by our principal partner, Mortgage Choice. 2020 has been a challenging year, so Mortgage Choice and its national network of mortgage brokers are on a mission to help Australians restart their 2020. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or investment property or want to refinance an existing home loan to get a better deal, let a mortgage choice broker answer all your questions, show you what's available and do the legwork to help you restart 2020. Visit mortgagechoice.com.au or call 137762 to speak to your local broker. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. Such a pleasure. And from my point of view too, Sarah, Maureen here, um, welcome. And both Claire and I are really looking forward to talking to you today. I think we share a lot of things in common with you and what will be in common with women listening to this, I'm sure. So kind of in diving in from the business side of you, we want to ask a lot of questions about you, what drives you, things connected to money. But if we leave that question to one side because really fascinated about I Quit Sugar um, and the business around it. Can you tell us a bit more about that? You know, what motivated you to to set up the business, write the book? Oh, well, it was mostly illness and incapacitation, actually. Um, I'd been the editor of Cosmopolitan and I got very unwell with an autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's. And I was sort of um, stripped down to really... The bare essentials. I, I wasn't able to work or, or even walk for almost a year and um, I had to redefine what I was going to do with my life. It was one of those real, um, you know, fork in the road moments. And I wound up living in Byron Bay in an army shed in the forest and out of, you know, I whistled everything down to about two suitcases of belongings. And over the course of the next decade, so that suitcase. Uh, two suitcases reduced to one suitcase and eventually one carry-on bag. So my minimalism went to a next level, um, which I'm sure I think I think you're probably going to ask me about shortly. But um, this was in my I was 34 at the time, and I was writing a newspaper column for mm-hmm. Sunday Life magazine. It was it was for their magazine, and I wrote about ways to get well. It was sort of a, a way of me both 
um, exploring different ways of being well while earning a very meagre income from writing this one column a week. And um, I was short of the topic, and this was, it was almost 10 years ago to the, well, yeah, to the month, um, January 2011, um, New Year's Eve, I decided to quit sugar and I gave it a go for two months, two weeks, I should say. And I just kept going and going. And so it was a, an experiment that was out of necessity, um, both because my autoimmune disease meant that I had to keep trying things to see what would untangle what was going on in my body. Um, I was also short of a, a topic. Um, and any journalist or writer out there listening will probably know that feeling. You just grab it, whatever you can. Um, in this case, I grabbed it, something that I've been resisting doing for a while. And... This was before social media was invented, which is hard to fathom. Um, I did have a blog, and I was quite an early adopter in that sense. And I started writing about it. Twitter then was invented, and I know it was around this time because I'd written a story for Good Weekend magazine about it. I'd gone to the States to interview the new Twitterati who'd emerged, um, which all sounds so antiquated now, doesn't it? Um, so I started sharing images of food I was cooking from this little army shed and it, it developed um, a bit of a following. I started investigating the science and for really two years I went down the rabbit hole. Um, I eventually put um, $100 towards doing a how to write an ebook um, mm-hmm. course and again ebooks were very new back then um, or relatively new in Australia. So um, I put together an ebook of my recipes and also my formulated what became the eight week program after studying the science, psychology, and everything on it. And um, that became an Amazon bestseller. And I wasn't, I was expecting just to be able to recoup my costs. Um, I really wasn't um, expecting it to do well. And it then became a print book because the publishers noticed that there was this really random. Ebook that somebody had written that they, you know, never heard of. Um, and so they came knocking, and of course, it just spread from there. It, it, it took off in the US and became a New York Times bestseller and just went and went. So um, it evolved out of necessity, but then sort of just kept going because I was interested and I just took my interest to the next spot, the next spot, the next spot. That's amazing. And, you know, even talking about your forest in. Um in Byron, you know, from being editor of Cosmo, you're right in the thick of everything that's urban. And uh, so that's a tr- such a, a pivotal shift in itself. But a lot, of, a lot of writers, a lot of journalists, they're successful with books, Sarah, but you actually turned the whole I quit sugar model into a business. That's right, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So after a while, um, I, in fact, before I wrote the e-book, I was sort of coaching people on how to do the program on Facebook. Um, so Facebook kicked off, so I started playing around on Facebook. And I did this these programs for free, and I ran it for free for two years. So it was a kind of clunky community, um, and I'd walk people through the process of quitting sugar over the eight weeks and share recipes, and and it would amass sort of a couple of thousand people each time I ran the program. And I was doing it on my own while also trying to earn this living from writing my column and and attending doctor's appointments and, and so on. Um, and then, yeah, I guess it, it, it sort of evolved into the ebook. but then eventually, because there was so much interest in it and I couldn't run it on my own, and I built a small website that was fairly basic, um, 
and started to sort of run it via that. And then I had to rebuild it again. I think we ended up rebuilding it. Um, and when I say rebuilding, it wasn't like it was a knockdown. It was kind of, I added a lean-to gear, a Cape Cod extension there. I mean, the back end was so ugly by the end of it. Um, and it just evolved and then, of course, became a digital business. It became Australia's biggest wellness site um, and I had 24 staff in the end, yeah. And Sarah, just out of interest, because, you know, again, this is a program about money. So you were successful with the book and some of the money coaching. So were you using that kind of revenue to to build the business? Um. I actually can say that I put that $100 into writing an e-book uh, in those very early days, and that was the only money I ever put into the business. Um, wow. The way that I operated, and it, I suppose you will be familiar with the fact that it's quite a female way of running the business. It was very conservative. I didn't take big risks. I probably took the risks in terms of the content and going off into a new realm, you know, ahead of most people. Um, and so, but in terms of financial risk, I always operated by going, all right, as long as I've got three-month wages for any staff member I have on board, and, you know, obviously 24 staff members in the end, um, then once I've got that money, then I can put money into sort of, you know, um, anything that I need to do, investing in tech, investing in, well, extra staff, for instance. Um, so that's the way that I preferred to operate. I didn't, I didn't put, I didn't put my own money into the business apart from that one hundred dollars. Mm, that's really, that's really smart. And also, too, that's a very sound model to have at the scale that you were at. Three months cash reserves for running of the business, just in case you know a bad, bad month or two hit. So that makes sense. Did you? Were you working with an accountant closely at the time? Um, eventually, I did, um, and he's still my accountant. He's awesome, and he's been. He finds me an oddity, um, the way that I do things, but he generally goes and finds researchers and finds a book that, you know, fits to what I do and goes, wow, so there's, you know, what you've been doing the last couple of years, there's actually a theory behind it. And he, um, he said, you know, he likes to find a theory that fits my madness. But, um, yeah, I did get an accountant, but um, it's become a little bit of a story and it's in it's chronicled in my latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life, where I talk about the fact that I eventually did get this accountant, his name's Harry, and they sat down with me with a whiteboard and said, Okay, what are your financial goals? Where do you want to be in five years? And I just said, Harry, I don't I don't do financial goals, I just don't. Um, and he said, No, well, you know, help us out here and I said, Okay, well, um, I suppose if I've got to come up with something and I just made it up on the spot. I said, In five years I would like to be had enough money to live off the average, oh sorry, the minimum wage CPI until I'm 94. Mm. And um, in it, and then basically if I reach that point in five years, I will then um, stop working for money. Um, I will then do charity projects and projects that improve the world. Mm. Um, so literally five years to the week, Harry called me. He told me, you've hit your goal now. What do you want to do? It was at that point that I went, oh, right. And I'd made the commitment to myself. I'd actually had quite a number of illnesses. I had to face death a couple of times. I had some big turning points. And I'd made a commitment to myself never to get caught up in the system. And by system, I mean the system that tells me I have to perform a certain way and that I have to work to certain economic models. 
and what I call the conveyor belt mentality. You get on at sort of, you know, 18, you head off to uni, you do this, you do that, before you know it, you've got creepy hips and you can't even go to the bowling club. Like, that to me is not a life. And um, when I did choose to live, um, and it was a choice that I had to make, uh, I went, well, I'm going to live by my own rules. I'm going to do work that is of service to humanity in the best way I can. And I don't mean to sound Pollyanna-ish about it. It was very much... What motivated me, and I knew that that's what made me happy. So, at the five-year mark, when Harry came to chat to me, I said, "All right, game on." I made a commitment. Um, we need to sell this business, and so for a year, it was a whole process of you know putting together sales decks, slipping around to various media outlets and companies, and as you know, uh, personal investors, etc. And um, I had a board by this stage, and it was a loose board. It wasn't sort of your typical one. And um, we sort of slept around the joint. And anyway, after a year of this, of essentially being tire kicked and people wanting to negotiate such that, you know, most people listening to this program who have a business or experience this business would know that when you uh, have your face all over a business concept, um, when you go to try to sell it, of course, there's these golden handcuffs that get slapped on you. You'll get X amount of you know dollars for the business, but it entails you've got to earn it out. So yeah. this entails me sticking around in the business for two, three years, while some you know multinational um, scaled my business um, in all kinds of directions that probably veered from my my original intentions, mm. and that I knew wasn't going to sit right. Um, so after a year of this, I decided to essentially shut down my business, sell off the assets and give everything to charity. And I did that in May 2018, so it's been a good two and a half years now. And honestly, it's the best thing I've ever done. It's produced more uh, abundance than I could have ever imagined. Wow, yeah. It's quite amazing stories. I run a business and, and, you know, have I started like you. I started one up years ago, so I understand what you're saying. But I have to tell you, Sarah, I'm, I'm really liking Harry. You know, like I know you said, you know, <laughs> really, you know, this you're out of the box, Harry, in giving you those five-year goals. In a way, it's kind of taking you on a journey yeah. that you, say you ended up liking. And without writing that down, talking about minimum wage, you want to retire, you want to sell, who knows what might have happened? You know, he's kind of given you a track to go down. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, we talk, you know, sort of probably every fortnight one way or another and sometimes mm. about the football or his kids or whatever. But he, um, yeah, he's been a real supporter and he's actually brought a sort of circle of like-minded, you know, money types into my orbit who, mm. to be absolutely honest, find me a little bit weird but <laughs> and also find it weird that I manage to make money despite the decisions I make. Um, and, yeah, right, I, think, right. I think... Sorry, sorry, sorry. It like you're writing your own script. But, listen, I've got a new book for you. I think you should write a book called This One Wild and Precious Harry. <laughs> oh, God, I feel like telling that. That could go to his head. <laughs> how, you, you talked about Hasamoto. Is that how you pronounce it? You know, that's what... She, kind of moved you away from Cosmopolitan, you know, your health. How was your health going at this stage? 
Oh, Hashimoto's. Um, so Hashimoto's is a thyroid disease, an autoimmune disease. Um, you're referring to by the time I, I sold off the assets, you're talking May yeah. 2018? Yeah. Oh, much, much better. I mean, um, quitting sugar essentially got me back to almost normal and um, I also have bipolar disorder um, and uh, so that's been a battle, you could call it, um, that I've had to sort of modulate. So I have to be mindful of my health. I'm not a health nut. Anyone who knows me knows that um, I don't do rules. You've probably got, got a bit of a feel for that from my financial discussion. But um, I, I want to live vibrantly and to do that, that means I, you know, I eat a particular way. I suppose, essentially, I don't eat food out of packets. Mm. Um, and when you eat that way, I mean, that's really my only rule. Um, when you yeah. eat that way, then, then it kind of kills a whole heap of birds in one stone, with one stone. So you've got the sustainable environmental element, uh, mm. you've got the health element, um, packaged food, 80 to 90% of packaged food comes with added sugar. Um, and then it just also means that you're more mindfully engaged in cooking um, and that makes a very big difference. So, so also, um, you know, there's other sort of many birds with one stone things that I do with my lifestyle. I don't own a car. Again, that's for environmental reasons and minimalism reasons. Um, but what that means is how do I get around on a bike and walking? And so exercise for me isn't something that's an arduous process. It's just what I do all day, every day. Um, so I, I've always found it very hard to understand people who drive to a gym, sit on a, on a stationary bike for an hour, then drive home, shower, then drive to work. And I'm like, just ride a bike to work. <laughs> you know? Seems um, so logical. Yeah. Well, it is logical and people marvel, but they kind of don't do it. Yeah. It's, uh, very hard um, to battle. I'm with you, Sarah, because I kind of marvel and I do go to the gym from time to time. But we're only going to the gym because we're not doing physical work like we're really designed to do, you know. Yeah. And, and it's the gym's just a substitute, <sighs> the plowing of the field or the, you know, the digging or whatever where the, the whole, our whole anatomy is built for that. But gyms are yeah. just this modern day sit down kind of substitute because we sit down for work, I should say. And so we have to go to mm. the physical stuff. But... So um, also during that phase when you were closing down the business, you released a, a wage manifesto outlining how you were going to kind of live out the next stage of your life with your finances. What motivated you to be so transparent? Um, well, there's a couple of things. The, the realm that I was in, in terms of sharing information about clients and nutrition, required me to be very transparent. I was trained as a journalist and... Um, I knew that um, I couldn't just come out without a medical degree giving all my theories unless I was extremely transparent in my journalistic um, approach. And so I was very upfront with where I got up my information from, what my ideas were, the fact that I was only ever saying that this is, you know, the, the human experiment I went on, if, you know, and it worked for this reason. Here's all the evidence as to why it works now. You, And then I also got... Um, University to do a study with me tracking um, 40 people who did the I Quit Sugar program over nine months to re uh, read all their health markers. And what I did, the purpose of that, not only did it show that obviously there were incredible health benefits, 
but primarily I did it to show that it would cause no harm. So anyone who did this experiment themselves to see if quitting sugar made a difference, um, I could actually hand on heart say that there was legitimate science showing that it wasn't going to at least cause, cause harm. So I've always operated in that way. Uh, I don't feel comfortable um, doing stuff unless I do it that way. But also... I, um, when I came out and gave the money away, I was making a reasonably big statement and a lot of people, I think, land in trouble for, you know, giving money to charity and, and then it backfires because they actually don't manage it properly, they don't manage the optics of it properly. Um, and I also knew that I wasn't just giving my money away just, you know, to get a one-off, you know, pat on the back. I was doing it more because I actually wanted to encourage everybody around me to think about philanthropy in a different sort of a way. Yeah. So I was, the project that I worked, I didn't just give the money to charity. What I did was set up a charity trust where each six months I worked on a charity project in alignment with an existing charity that have already done all the legwork and they're on the right track. They've got great stuff going on. And what they need is a few is a bit more enrolment from the general community. So I work with people on a specific concept, and we get my community to then donate money and get involved in the charity itself. So not just kind of press donate here and you don't think about it ever again. I educate on the issues, and then I match the community's money dollar for dollar. Wow. So um, we double the amount, and that just means that. I've always come to believe that people, when they're engaged, um, you know, they'll actually get very enrolled. Um, so that's sort of part of it. And my wage manifesto was also, um, it was kind of self-serving. Uh, I, when you're a freelancer or you're a, you're a creative, as I am, and you get approached, I would get approaches, you know, dozens a day from people wanting something from me generally for free. And it is actually um, a part-time job for somebody to sift mm. through that. Yeah. And what I felt was I just don't have time for that. I've got time for big projects that hopefully can help humanity. I don't have time for weeding out people who just want things. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, what I did was I just put up a wage manifesto. I said, this is how I earn my money. And, um, you know, I give X amount away to charity and this is how I earn my money. It's a fixed rate. And the, I earn my money through public speaking now. So I speak to corporate um, and that pays my bills. It pays my rent. It pays for my food. Um, and then the other, all the I Quit Sugar funds, so all the money from the I Quit Sugar Recommend kit that's on a bunch of products. So they, they pay a fee per year to have my recommendation attached to their product on, a, on the packaging, yeah. um, as well as all the e-books that still sell around the world and all the digital products, all of that money still goes to charity. Um, and so, yeah, it just it actually shifts people's thinking. And what's actually happened is, and I mentioned this before, that my decision actually created more abundance. I now, this is the ultimate irony, I am now earning more than a comfortable wage. Um, you know, that's through my lens. Um, <laughs> mind you, I spend virtually nothing, but... Um, it's very comfortable for me. It pays my rent. You know, it, it pays my bills. Um, and it's through public speaking. And it's financial institutions. So predominantly banks, superannuation companies, etc., who book me to come and speak to their either their clients or their staff about how to have a life of value without money. Yeah. I mean, the irony is hilarious. Um, it's... 
not entirely missed on these clients, but it does speak to the fact that everybody is yearning um, a career, a way of living that is not money focused. So mm-hmm. it's a beautiful irony. And what I mean by a wage manifesto is I just fix fee and I just say to these big corporates, I'm sorry, it's not negotiable and this is the reason why. And in fact, I'm going to ask you if you would like to donate an extra $500 to my current charity project. Um, so it's just very clear. And I don't profess to having come up with the idea. Um, I actually learned it from Seth Godin, who I'm sure you've heard of and many of your listeners have heard of. Has heard of. He has written over 60 books. Um, he's a marketing guru. He is also one of the most legit people that I've interviewed in my you know, 25-year journalism career. And I've spoken to a lot of different you know, self-helpers and life hackers and, and experts on personal psychology. Um, and he was very legit. He very much lived by his message. And he has a similar sort of manifesto where he's very upfront about what he charges for, what he will do for free, etc., etc. And um, it's a sort of a boundary that becomes uh, very respected um, because I think the world needs um, firmness. It needs people who are willing to put a line in the sand around what their principles are. Yeah. And you're definitely right in the sense too, it's also just brings exposure to an alternative to to trigger some thinking about how people could maybe mm. restructure themselves. It's um That's exactly it. And that's what I love. Yeah. I mean that's that's the bit that you've actually hit the nail on the head. That's actually the bit that I love the most. Have you had much um, response from people saying, You made me think about this and now I do this? Yes, yes. For a whole yeah, yes, definitely. Mm, um I think also it's probably more come in tandem with the waste and minimalism messages that I promote. I think the two have to have come at the same time. You need to actually learn um, to live with less and to be less scared of that Um, at the same time as taking some kind of big leap into I'll do this for free but I'll charge for this. It's almost like... um, You've got to do them at the same time. Mm. You've got to need less to be able to ask for less. Yeah. So you you could basically say that you could declare yourself financially independent. Um, Mm. How would you define that for yourself on a a daily basis? Um, Well, I suppose, I mean, I grew up with no money. I grew up... um, with a family that very much struggled and that was my childhood and it can send you one way or the other it can send you into being a raging capitalist or it can send you into being very very austere and um and um minimalist and i went the latter route as did my five brothers and sisters thankfully because i don't know how we'd get on if there was a raging capitalist in the family um but um so for me, I suppose it's the fact that I don't wake up worried about money, which is how I saw my parents operate. Mm. Um, it was a black cloud um, and over the family, and and I actually I actually joke about the fact. I mean, every now and then I borrow friends' cars, or I I have to hire a share car or something like that. And um, I actually joke that um, for me, it's about being able to get a parking fine without actually losing losing my shit, you know what I mean, like yeah. without thinking the world's going to come to an end. I know that sounds like a ridiculous barometer, but that's mine. I can um, so relate to so, that. Yeah, yeah. So I can 
sort of just pay the fine, move on. Um, and I can imagine there'd be people listening who know, you know, a, a parking fine, particularly when you live in Sydney, can make or break your weekly budget. So, um, yeah, so, and I used to fight them. I used to fight every parking fine, you know, because I couldn't afford them. Um, so, so yeah, I suppose for me, um, it is, it's the luxury of not having to worry about money. But I can do that because I genuinely don't worry about possessions. Yeah. So I have, to quote Walt Whitman or loosely quote him, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, he basically said that, you know, happiness in life is, is um, you know, bringing your desire, toning your desires down to the bare basics. Mm-hmm. And that's what I have always done. So um, I actually, yeah, for me, financial success or, you know, comfort is, is really not wanting for very much. So it comes from the other angle of, of, you know, financial stability or security is not wanting it in the first place. Yeah. Um, and, and that, I was sort of, I grew up that way, but then, you know, even despite the fact that I was the editor of Cosmo and worked in TV and, and, you know, living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney where I'm surrounded by, you know, image and artifice and attachments and so on, um, I have managed to tone my wants down. Uh, and tone them and tone them and tone them over the years. And there is very little that I want for. So that means that I don't have to, you know, well, there's very little that I want for that costs money. Mm. Interesting. So that's the approach I take. Yeah. And so you've just released a new book this year, This One Wild and Precious Life. It has such a wide-ranging list of topics, but can you tell our audience about the, the premise of the book? Yeah, so I set out to essentially find a more a hopeful path at a soul level um, for us all through the climate crisis. I've been a climate activist for many years and I just couldn't see any of the messaging getting through. I was also watching everybody get very overwhelmed um, and the overwhelm was leading to a stuckness, a numbness and inaction. But then on top of that, this horrible guilt that we weren't doing enough and, you know, and this horrible sort of cycle that everybody was trapped in. And I despaired for many years as to what we could do. And so I went on a journey to find out what was going to be the best approach for us um, to, to work our way through to a radical form of hope and mobilising hope. And um, so it took me three years and I tell the story while hiking around the world. Now, I was already hiking around the world finish off on what I mentioned about living out of two suitcases and then it whittled down to one. After I was in Byron Bay for a year and a half, I pretty much lived as a nomad um, for, well, up until until about two and a half years ago. So I was on the road for eight years, um, living wherever it is that I needed to be and I would just hike um, wherever I was. So I hiked in the footsteps of Nietzsche in Switzerland. Um, I hiked the Sierra Nevadas. I, I, I go in, in sort of with a poet, my favourite poet, David White, and, um, and we hike around uh, the Lake District in the footsteps of Wordsworth to sort of discuss some of the ideas that were first formulated at the advent of capitalism and industrialisation in the late 1800s and then explore it to the modern day. It sounds very dry, but it's kind of not. I bring in poetry, 
pop cultural stuff. I meet these wild characters along the way. Um, and I bring in all of the science around why hiking actually connects us. And, uh, yeah, of course, during the writing of the book, the bushfires happened and then COVID happened and then the Black Lives Matters, um, you know, protests brought a whole heap of the racial inequities that I was discussing in the book to the surface. And we all became very alive to it and the pain increased. And so then the book came out uh, last month and uh, right, I think, as we're, I think, really looking for a different way of thinking about this. So, yeah, that's, that's the premise of the book. I hope that's answer the question yeah yeah definitely yeah it's i knew it was going to be a hard one to to answer yeah (laughs) it's a beautiful book um so just on that topic as well you're renowned for minimizing your consumption in in so many areas so did you have any advice for how someone can make a start on minimizing their own consumption yeah um it just sounds really blunt and it might not be what everybody wants to hear but it's the thing that works just don't go to the shop and I think during COVID, we have had an inkling to how joyous that can be. And I'm sorry, I know that that affects the whole retail sector you know, around the world. But I think we also know that consumption isn't going to be what's being, going to save us. Um, more, more, more is not going to save us. The resources have run out. Um, so um, shopping begets shopping. You go to the mall for, I don't know, um, a, a, a vegetable knife and you come home with towel sets and new shoes and, and so on and really they're not necessarily things you need um, so if you put off going to the shop you know like for instance I use the example in the book and this is a real life example for me I mean I can go for 13 months and then 15 months without ever going to the shop apart from um, for things like food toilet paper um, you know batteries basics um so, and, th- and it's not that it's an effort. It's not like I'm setting myself a challenge. It's mostly because Harry might come to things. <laughs> Are you kidding? Are you alive? spent nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I should actually say, on three separate occasions, my credit card company has rung on those uh, times when I finally do go to the shop and break my, my drought. And, go, and I shop like a man. I'll go up there and I'll buy a pair of shoes, a whole bunch of underpants, um, you know, I'll buy everything at once and mm. it'll just be a repeat of, you know, same size, same item. I just go in there and, and I'm out. And I've actually had phone calls as I've exited the mall to say there's unusual spending activity on your credit card, Miss Wilson. Um, could you confirm a bunch of details? And that's happened three times. It is that spark, um, a change in behavior when I actually do go shopping. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, yeah, I will literally, I mean, I, it's become a, I think the, the project did a segment where it focused on the fact that I only own three pairs of underpants. Um, and I will get down to, you know, two pairs and I'll go, right, probably time to go to shops and get some new undies. And I will just put it off. So I'll put it off for a week because I'll go hiking or something another week, another week. And I just realise I can get away with two or three pairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that I encourage um, for people is to gamify it. You know, you could say to yourself, oh, I need, I, I need to go and get a new pair of jeans. Well, I'll have a think about it, do you? Just try to wear them a bit longer and a bit longer and a bit longer. And then you start to fall in love with their frayed edges and you find a way to fix, fix the zip. And then you just wear them a bit longer and a bit longer. And you start to realize that it's actually really great not to have to go up to a shopping mall. So, um, 
so that would be my number one tip, to be honest, um, is just don't go to the shops and gamify it and actually get a really wonderful, superior sense of satisfaction from um, getting quite creative with what you've already got and using it all up. Um, minimalism isn't about decluttering, and this is the big confusion. You've got that Netflix series called The Minimalist, and then you've got um, Maria Kondo all you know, espousing these ideas of decluttering. And I know during COVID, lots of people got into that, thinking that that was a wonderful environmental thing they were doing. And actually, I mean, it's, it's the opposite. Um, 95% of Vinny's clothing donated to thrift stores goes into landfill yeah. or gets dumped out at sea. Um, you're kidding yourself if you think that all these wonderful people are repurposing your clothing. They're not, because how many people do you know are shopping at thrift stores as opposed to the number of people who are dumping their stuff there. Well, Sarah, I'm going to jump in there because you're talking to two people who are addictive to recycled clothing from op shops. And so... Great. Avid. Wonderful news. (laughs) Very happy with us because we spread the word. But just you've talked about amazing things and I don't know if the PM and the Treasurer would be happy with you at the moment in terms of trying to get the economy going, but... I fundamentally understand what you're talking about in terms of overconsumption. But looking back on your life, Sarah, what what advice would you give to yourself? You know, when you were, you kind of must have been, you know, into the city, as you said, you lived in the eastern suburbs, you know, in Cosmo. Would you give yourself some kind of advice looking back to your younger younger person? As Claire and I always say, if she'd listen. You know, would you have changed? Yes, yeah, listen. I like I like that um, yeah. addition to to the question. Um, yeah, I would probably say um, I've, I've always had this advice. I always say this answer when I get asked the question, and that regardless of the context, it's like I would just whisper into my ear. You know what? Everything will be okay. Everything you are going to be okay. I promise. That's what I would probably tell myself. And in the context of what we're discussing here, I would say. Your instincts, trust it. So I wouldn't actually change anything I did. I'm really glad I had my stints working in, you know, mainstream media and in very commercial media because I got to understand the commercial world. I got to understand, you know, where female psychology sits and where, you know, where our weaknesses are and our desires and vulnerabilities are at. I don't regret anything I've done except for the fact that um, my horrible, crippling anxiety, coupled with um, inherent self-doubt, um, meant that I just lived in a state of not of, of fraud complex and thinking that I was very... And thinking, well, just not knowing where my values sat. I had to live by my values, and I've been fortunate in that I've got no choice. I basically... Ex- if I veer from my values, or even at Cosmo, I rode a bike. I've never owned a handbag in my life. I, you know, told PRs that I didn't want gifts. Um, I would send things back, um, a whole bunch of things like that. So I, I suppose I stuck to my values, but I was extremely uncomfortable. I felt quite ostracized. Um, I felt very alone. And if I could whisper into that younger person's ear, I'd say, no, 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 you're on the right track. You're going to be okay. It's okay to have your principles and sit by them. Yeah. That's certainly something that we're driving um, at Tilly Money is to build up role models like yourself who 
try to talk to younger women and say, you know, believe in yourself. You know, don't be over cocky. You know, but that that's a problem with ego too. But don't don't doubt yourself um, and live by yeah. values, live by values and principles. Yeah. And Sarah, just to wrap up, because we've taken up a lot of your time today, but we just wanted to to finish with a, a lightning round of questions. Mm. So I'm just going to ask, put a little sentence in front of you, and and finish it however however you please. I won't rest until. Oh, I won't rest until I've done everything I can to fight for humanity and life on this planet. Financial freedom is. Oh, it would be. Getting getting the parking fine and, and not losing my shit. <laughs> I love it. Um, always invest in renewables. The future holds. Oh, big challenges, but challenges that challenges that will force us to rise to our best and most adult and most longed for version of ourselves. So it's uh, it's a positive. What's most important is? When your soul calls you to an appointment with life, which is a phrase I take from Dr. James Hollis, a beautiful Jungian psychiatrist. So when your soul calls you to an appointment with life, um, it's important you step up and you show up. You show up to the appointment. You do what life is asking of you. And finally, the world needs more. Wild creative. Lovely. Love it. Well, just in concluding and thanking you, I think we've certainly talked to one wild and creative and very precious person in you, Sarah, today, and we thank you very much for what you've shared with us on Tilly Money. Oh, that's very, very kind of you. It was a joy to talk to you both. Your hosts this week were Maureen Jordan and Claire Osmond. Thanks to Ixon for our intro music. See you next time.